Welcome to Black Learners in Focus, your gateway to knowledge and inspiration. This is an Innovation for Equity podcast series brought to you by our 2023 Senior Leadership Fellows, better known as Cohort 3, who are truly making moves that matter in the lives of Black learners. In this dynamic and insightful five-episode podcast series, our fellows delve deep into the heart of education. Join them as they provide an immersive view of the current education landscape spanning from PK through 12th through post-secondary and into the workforce. Thank you, everyone, for making time to join us today for a very special um, session on mobilizing parents and community uh, to advance education for Black learners. I am very honored to be joined by a very esteemed panel, uh, also with my co-host and also fellow um, cohort uh, classmate for the Innovation for Equity Fellowship, Mr. John Jones. Um, Our other classmate, Will Collins, was not able to join us today, but he is here in spirit. Um, has really played a critical role in getting us to this point. Um, but I don't want to delay um, the uh, the work that the conversation we're going to have today. Uh, and would love to just start to kick off by giving you all an opportunity to introduce yourself, the work that you do, uh, and the organizations that you lead. And I'll kick us off with, you know, the First Lady of Houston, a dear friend, uh, Michelle Russian, who is doing some tremendous work in advocating for our young people and helping families navigate a very challenging time in the space of education here in the city of Houston. And so, Sean, um, pleasure to have you on and would love to turn it over to you to introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Sean Rudson. I'm from Houston, Texas. I was born in Los Angeles, California, but I've been educated in Houston, Texas all my life. I've been living in the current community that I live in since I was three years old, and I am 55 now, about to be 56. So I've seen the changes, if any changes, have happened in my community for myself. Um, I'm over a talking group called the Triangle Effect. We're not a 501c3 now, but we are a talking group that helps to ensure parents are empowered and understand the changes in education and how to navigate the education system. This all came about when I was looking one day in the newspaper and I saw a majority of the schools in my neighborhood were D's or F's. And I was like amazed. I was like, how could this be? So I wondered to myself, I wonder how many other people are concerned about this. And so I just put a post out there on social media, uh, got a lot of people responding and started having meetings in my community, my city councilman at the time, allowed me to use the community center. He really supported the idea. It's a known saying. He said, thanks, Sean, for giving a damn about education. And so we began to meet and we started, I started to notice that the district was giving us principals, but they kept moving out. They kept moving out. So we had a middle school was like one from the bottom, a high school that was spiraling down. But we, I began to share with parents on how to be concerned, and I began to uh, advocate, join SDMCs. And I'm, I'm glad to say today that not, I don't know what the findings will be for this year because the governor says, well, the, the superintendent says all schools will be DNFs or alive. But before then, our schools had gotten out of IR. We had been IR for many years, so. I just want to say to all parents and to anybody, 
uh, it makes a difference when you get involved. And I'm here to empower you. Again, my name is Sean Rushing. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Jamar, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, my name is Jamar Barnes. I am, um, wow, just to follow Sean, uh, I'm thinking like, what am? I, what should I? Um, so my name is Jamar Barnes. I'm a lifelong learner and um, I operate uh, on the theory of nothing for us without us. I believe a lot of times in our black and brown communities, a lot of people plan for us without involving us in the plan. And so um, I taught school for 10 and a half years um, before I retired in 2018. And then I moved on to nonprofit management. And in that space, I began to discover my passion even more. Um, I went on to be the director of programming and entertainment for Alpha Phi Alpha for seven years. Um, and I also do the work through there, but I also do it through my consulting company, uh, OOTR Consulting LLC, where we do educational consulting. We help families in career spaces. We build community events. Um, I also do that through my nonprofit, the Robert H. Johnson Endowment, where we know that education is important. College and career readiness is important. In our Black and Brown community, sexual health and education is also important. Um, and also through a local nonprofit here in Houston, where I lead um, a diverse coalition of 165 um, profit and nonprofit and educational partners around Houston. And so we mobilize to go to different communities and to ask and assess what their needs are and deliver those goods and deliver those services and create spaces where our families can feel safe and where they can feel seen. And so um, I always say that as long as I can, as often as I can, I want to serve as many people as I can. And I know that different people and places are assignments. And so I'm here until mine is done. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Last but not least, Dr. Murphy. Oh, man, this is a a, a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. I don't know where to begin. For me, it's, it's been a, a, a real live roller coaster. Um, and we start talking about assignment. I, I'm actually I'm here on assignment. I am in East East Cleveland, Ohio. East Cleveland is a suburb. East Cleveland is a place where. People don't drive through unless they know where they're going. Uh, East Cleveland is also my home. And in East Cleveland, I have been fortunate to serve as assistant principal at my alma mater high school. I have served as a sub principal for a sub assistant principal for my uh, alma mater middle school. And today I am a vice principal at our elementary school uh, with Oh, almost 20 years, as ironically as it sounds, 20 years of experience in education. I am uh, what you call someone who's a, a, a sure anomaly. I've been in higher ed, so I've been on the president's cabinet as assistant vice president. I served as a college professor. I've been on dissertation committees, fortunate to get uh, African-American man and woman through the dissertation committee. Uh, to receive their doctorate degrees from two separate universities and addition to publishing uh, numerous books. But in this regard, when we start talking about education, being able to know what that end product looks like and seeing what we get at the ground level, that foundational level from K through 12 uh, has, has been uh, a blessing for me. I'm so grateful to work with families and to bring understanding out uh, to who we call as socially economically challenged, poor, 
uh, all of the above. And through my experience, I have changed that term terminology and I start calling our people misinformed. Our black and brown people have no clue on how education works, how it's supposed to work, what it's supposed to look like. And then when we start looking at the teachers, how to teach black and brown students, how to talk to black and brown students, how to work with them, how to work with parents. And so and, and, and when we start looking at that overarching theme of getting them from the classroom to a degree or certificate to the workforce to changing their whole family dynamic, uh, it has been truly a blessing. And so this work for me, it comes full circle because I never thought in a million years I would be a principal in, in, my, in my home district, let alone be on the pathway to get a superintendent license. And so this has just been something that, again, I, I'm very fortunate and happy to be a part of. So thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you all for um your intros, um, again, we're very lucky to, um, you know, be here on have you guys on this platform um, talking about the work that you guys do. So we're going to jump right into our conversation today. So you guys kind of gave an, a brief introduction of the work that you guys do, but I think it's important for folks to know how you guys arrived into this work of community engagement, advocacy, um, however you want to describe it, right? It's, you know, assignment work, right? How, how did we get here? Um, and, and I'll you know, start us off with Jamar on this. Um, honestly, I, I used to say I got here on accident, but the older I get, you know, the wiser I get, I realized it was God's plan the whole time. Um, and that's really my honest answer. I started teaching um, when I was finishing my second degree in college. Um, very, very briefly, I'll say that I didn't take school seriously. I went to Prairie View a &M University where we produce productive people. And, and I, I joshed my way through my first degree, getting into my second degree. I only got that second degree and started studying that degree because they wouldn't let me graduate unless I signed up for a second one. So while I was there, um, I, I got into substitute. Actually, I got into leading a step team at my local middle school. Um, and my home and my university were like an hour and some odd drive away. So I would drive back and forth and I just kept interacting with the kids and interacting with the teachers. And it went from me being a, a assistant step coach to being a substitute teacher, to being a part-time teacher, to then being in the classroom. And then um, my first couple of years, I got teacher of the year first year. I got district teacher of the year and was like the youngest first black uh, you know, district graduate to get it. And all of these things were a culmination of of uh, how I got into this. And what I realized is because I've only worked at Title I schools um, by desire and um, kind of as Ralph kind of alluded to, um, and as, as uh, we know, like in our Black and Brown communities, there's such a deficit, there's such a need. And so I literally was making the black history shows or getting partners to come to our schools or like doing the local can drives, you know, visiting kids homes. So I began to be a community organizer out of necessity for the school that I served. And I realized that I do love teaching, but like, this is also what's important because the nine to five is good, but that six to 10 and those things that we do on the weekend, that's what really wraps our arms around our kids. And so that's how I got into this work. And uh, after I retired from teaching in 2018, 
um, I wanted to do even more. And so um, I began to work at nonprofits and I began to, to sit in meetings and to learn more about local elected officials and to learn about the policies and the processes of districts and to learn about what our families really need, doing empathy interviews, um, literally going to people's homes and going to schools and communities and sitting in classrooms even more. And so I, I would say not just God, but education was my my doorway into this space. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Murphy, I know you got you started in the, the, the principal role, but you know how did that morph into something more when it came to uh, community engagement? No, so I actually started off with higher education. Uh, uh, so higher education has been my 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 background for a long time. Uh, being uh, being in the community. Uh, getting students uh, enrolled into different colleges, different community colleges, traveling across the country. So I've been fortunate uh, to go from the University of Toledo, graduate, uh, join Alpha Phi Fraternity Incorporated, going to doing the Project Alphas, talking about college, what college looks like, uh, why, are we, why are we so important, why are Black people so important in, on these college campuses, why is graduating so important, to meeting people, then traveling, uh, working at Ohio State University and then uh, leaving there and, and going to the community college, looking at what we need at the community college. How does that impact our community? Uh, the community engagement piece was big for me. Learn, learning all of that stuff came full circle coming from uh, Cuyahoga Community College to rural Oregon. So sitting, serving on the president's cabinet as the first African-American dean of students and assistant vice president in a white, rural, Native American town in Britain, looking at what what was going on out there. How, what are they doing different than us? And then using that information in the community that I come from. So taking all of those experiences full circle and we're looking at the principalship, the principalship to date, I would argue, was the hardest job in education. Because when we start looking at community engagement, the principal, not the superintendent, not the teacher, the principal stands in the middle of everything that's happening. When we look at the in, instruction, so primarily myself as a, as a black man, uh, people would assume I'm in the inner city. I'm going to assist the principal because I'm good with discipline, not knowing that I'm a master teacher, not knowing that I've published, not knowing that I've served as a college professor, and ultimately not understanding that the principal is in the position to critique and evaluate the quality of instruction in the classroom. And that type of information is not getting out when, we, when I sit down and talk to parents, when I sit down and talk to community advisors, uh, people who want to come into the schools to do the work, but not even understanding that I'm not the person that you need to talk to. You see the head, you see the title, but there's some other, there's some parents that need to some approval from you. There's some uh, students who need to vet you out and see if your program is going to work. And when we start talking about community engagement and community involvement, I got into this work to serve as a conduit, as a person who can make, who can explain the apples and the oranges to the person with the money. Because that's what it boils down to when we start looking at education. And that part of my assignment, that part of this work, has been fulfilling because I could go into places dressed like this or dressed like my, 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 my good brother, Brother Jones, who gave me my first bow tie 
almost 10 years ago uh, and be able to have those conversations which are imperative to the success of the community. Awesome. Thank you. And, and Sean, we'd love to hear. From okay. You. Okay. So I call myself the triangle effect because when you have a name, people uh, tend to listen a little more. But my, my name is really Sean Russian and my work, my reason for this work was really because of my children. At the end of the day, uh, I wanted my children to experience more than I had in education. And so I started to pay a lot. I was disenfranchised. I was their disenfranchised parent. I was in an art meeting for my son and the lady said I was irate. Now, that may not sound like a big word to you all, but at the time that she said it, I did not know what she was talking about. And so I went home and I looked up the word and I was like, I dare her call me irate. All I was doing was trying to understand what what process they were going to go through to make sure my child can learn in this setting. I had one child who was different. He was ADD, he was ADHD, and he was dyslexia. So from the time of kindergarten, they were trying to put a label on him. And so I got to the point where I was sitting in these meetings trying to understand what was going on, and there was no one there for me. There was no one there for me, and even the person who was there for me worked for the district. So I began to believe that I can't trust anyone to make sure my child gets an education more than I know. And I began to read and I began to research. And then I realized because of my advocacy, my child didn't have to be labeled. He didn't have to be put on medication. There were other alternatives. And he he's a very, he's one of my smartest childs. I mean, out of all three of my children, he's the smartest. And so I was just a disenfranchised parent who didn't know a lot, but had children, wanted better for my children. So it meant I was going to have to do more. Even though I had a job, I worked full time, I was not a single parent. And, and that's how I began to do this work and become more educated and empowered to be able to speak up and advocate. Thank you for that powerful story. Well, I want to shift gears here and talk about the solutions, right, and strategies and the ways we can really um, amplify engagement for our Black community. So we'd love to hear, uh, doesn't have to be from everyone, but, um, you know, Dr. Murphy, we'd love to hear about some of the strategies that you've been able to develop uh, that have led you to help enroll young people into the community colleges and working with families, uh, Black families in East Cleveland to really um, educate and inform them um, about the educational opportunities that they probably are not aware of. I think one of the biggest things that I begin to do is tell them that first, education works, it can work, it will work, but it'll take a community to believe that it, it, it can work meaning that you have to establish a village, you have to reach out, you have to talk to people, uh, you have to see the future, okay? Now, when we start talking to families, the biggest thing with families is, is understanding the money aspect. Socioeconomically challenged families don't believe that education can work for them because they don't see it working right now. 
and understanding that careers are built over time. Money comes over time. The longevity comes over time. Success doesn't happen overnight. And that's one of the biggest strategies that I've used is painting real pictures. Uh, we have the tendency to focus on the past and look at everybody, our, our past heroes, and I use social media as a, uh, a construct to connect them to real life people, people who are living it, people who are doing it, people that they can attach themselves to. And so by doing that, I, have, I would say that that has been a successful strategy for engaging families because they can hold on to something that's tangible and then build it from there. Awesome. Uh, Jamar, we'd love to hear about you. I know you built a tremendous uh, platform here in Houston, and I know this is going to only take off nationally as well. Uh, we'd love to hear how you've been able to educate our families um, locally. Um, I think, and and I appreciate you for saying that. Um, I think the the education starts with the engagement. So um, we can't engage a, an audience that isn't there. And so prime example, we just did an event at um, uh, Forest Brook uh, Middle School here in Houston uh, a couple weeks ago. The event was on September 30th, but what we needed to do was a multi-layered communications approach. And so the approach that I designed was we are going to have our families that have access to their cell phones in their hand or that have access to sign up on Eventbrite. But we're going to also have our families that I don't have a cell phone. We may be sharing one phone in the home or when mom is away at work, how, you know, where's the phone or so what what we literally do uh, in a grassroots approach is literally we we printed a thousand color copies with QR codes and, and even no QR code. We literally walk from door to door meeting those families, handing them the flyer, hugging them, saying, hey, we've got this event where you can come out and get education. You can get your hair cut. You can get access to healthcare. There's free food. We're giving away gift cards. There's all the things that you, there's yoga, all the things that we had in one space. We were able to literally give it to our families in their hand and say, this is a free event for you to come to. And those families came and were able to get the on-site education. They were able to get like I said, access to healthcare and haircuts and everything else. And so I think, again, when we circle back to how to engage the family is to actually engage with the family. Um, a lot of the times people are afraid to get into the the space with our people. Right. It's, so I know sometimes as a as a as a black and brown person, we can enter into neighborhoods that people say, oh, this is a dangerous neighborhood. But it's really everyday people like you and myself. So um, I think that this work in most times is not for the faint of heart. Because sometimes you're going to find yourself in a neighborhood where there are no there are parked cars that's been here for two years on the street. There are dogs walking up and down the street. The mailmen don't want to get out. The people don't want you on their front door. Right. But but that's just the appearance of the neighborhood. The people in that neighborhood are so genuine. They want to be loved. They want to help like you and I. And so, again, educating starts with literally going to our families, like literally, because when you get out there in that neighborhood, people are like, oh, I knew y'all were out here today. I'm glad you. You know, we had our principal, the principal of the school who was with us at the school that I was consulting and working for at the time. When I tell you the kids were yelling and screaming out the front door when they saw her, that's my principal, Miss Lewis. You know, the moms and dads like, girl, what you doing in this neighborhood? And you brought him with you. You know, so it's just so good to be around our people. But people are so afraid to touch our people and touch our community. And that's where it starts. Very true. Sean, what's been one strategy that has you know, really, you've been really able to see some movement with in the work that you do with the triangle. With the safety measures that we need in our community, 
uh, reaching out to our uh, public officials who help us with safety, actually going and riding around the neighborhood, talking to the children who are doing off-task behavior when they should be in school and just encouraging them to go to school. So engagement is important and not being afraid to talk to families that live right here in my neighborhood is important. And just reminding them how much I love them, how much I care. Is there something missing? Do they know about the resources at their school has really made an impact. And then put it on social media. A lot of times I will go live when I'm talking to students. I won't show the students, but I'll go live to show people how I'm engaging with these students who are walking around the streets during school hours and just asking them questions about why and is there anything I can help them with or their families. And it works. Thank you. Um, so the biggest challenge we see, and I, I know you guys see this in the work, when we do have those opportunities to engage the parents and we bring them into a one centralized location to talk about issues that are impacting our Black children in our communities uh, when it comes to education, um, everyone has a different perspective on issues. And you guys all, I'm sure, have been in several situations where you've had to kind of manage all of those um, personalities. Um, for folks who are looking to be more intentional about collaborating and bringing everyone together to take on big issues like education in their communities, you know, how, how do you guys suggest they go about doing that? Jamar, what are your thoughts on this? You know, when I was a teacher, I used to have this theory. Uh, well, let me say this. I'm always a teacher. When I was in the classroom teaching, um, I used to have this theory. If it's not fun to teach, it's not fun for you to learn. If it's not fun for you to learn, it's not going to be fun for me to teach. And so when we talk about uh, community organizing and working with community members, the community members in our community are also those nonprofits and for-profits and those businesses, right? And so I lead a coalition called the Blueprint for Coalition, the Blueprint for Change Coalition. I've, I've led it for three years. It's full of profit, nonprofit, educational, just general community members. And what's the base of that? Again, when we talk about going back to grassroots, when I have these meetings where it's the first Wednesday of every month via Zoom, everyone is welcome to attend. It's an open, fair, and flexible space. One, pre-screening the people. Like, who are these people? Are they interested in our community? Do they want to make a change? Are they not afraid to get out there? And then two, when we have these meetings, when we have these um, public community events that we have together, is the does the space feel safe for them, right? Um, do they feel welcomed into the work? Um, so again, welcoming our people, making people feel welcome. Like, you never want to, I never want to go to anyone's house where I feel like I'm not. I shouldn't be there. I want to be able to have full access to your house like you have access to your house. And so when we talk about I can't create something with someone who doesn't feel comfortable. So I think at the base of it, whether we're engaging with our community partners, we're engaging with the people who live in the neighborhood, the children, the school, our coworkers. Um, you got to make people feel welcome. And then the second and last thing I'll say about this is um, knowing your audience. I remember the very first time when I started, when I retired from the classroom, started working in a space. I was so excited to organize this voting event and I was going to sign up all these students to register to vote. And I had all these um, mail outs and everybody, I'm, I am certified to do this. And I went to the University of Houston and I'm thinking I'm going to get 300 signatures and da, 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 da. I got like 12. 
And what it was, was I didn't know what my audience needed. Those students didn't care about registering to vote that semester, although they should have been. They needed help with their tuition. They, some of those girls needed sanitary supplies. They were trying to figure out how to stay in their dorms. They needed food for the week. Like I was, I was putting the wrong thing in front of the audience. And so they weren't responsive. So it also know your audience and give what they need and they will respond. And, and I'd like to um, pose this also to Sean. I, I know in the climate that we are in right now in Houston with school and the state takeover, I know you played a tremendous role in helping uh, our community navigate this this transition. And would just love to hear how you were successfully able to get folks to, you know, start to listen more and get a deeper understanding of like what was happening and how to take actionable steps that really uh, could move the needle. So uh, the one thing that I did do that's a little bit different is I joined a resilience uh, project team that we have in our community under the Hog Foundation and the Mental Health Foundation. And we're working together to create some sustainability in our community because over here we are, we're, we're not, our schools are not going down. We're kind of average. But the communication about education is solid. All of our community groups that we have, none of them have an education arm. There is no communication about education over here at all. So we're working together to, to again, increase that because COVID came, our families were in our houses, so it only made it worse. So now we're working together and we're looking to put together a where the project now is we're working on putting that education summit together for the uh for next February, February, March. And that's how we're looking to engage more families. So to be on this call and hear the things that Jamar is saying and the other doctor is saying really helps me understand how do we re-engage these families that I connected to before COVID that are now thinking, well, I'm almost at the end, or it doesn't matter. See, they took over the district. Just getting parents to just really understand that no matter what someone says they're going to give you, you always need to check and make sure you're receiving that. And so just, again, just helping parents be more involved in the education of their children and making sure what's written is what we're really getting or receiving. So my next question is, you know, what do we need to do for our Black families to better position them to be advocates for our children? And Dr. Murphy, again, you, you are boots on the ground in East Oak Cleveland. You know, as you mentioned, right, you better know where you're going when you show up to, in, in that part of town. Uh, but, you know, I think that that is, speaks volumes in terms of their ability to trust you um, as a community representative to help them navigate and advocate for, for their children. And so... Um, you know, what do we need to do more when it comes to that? Well, it, it, it goes back to something, something sort of what's happening in Houston. Uh, I, I make that as a joke, but it's a real thing. East Cleveland, uh, because East Cleveland is, is, is black. East Cleveland is a suburb that has a black mayor, black superintendent, black police chief, black judge. Uh, this is, has been an African-American run sit, suburb. Uh, for a decade. However, it is one of the poorest run suburbs. And so when we start talking about state takeover, 
my district was a state takeover. We are edging our way out of state takeover. And one of the things that we started looking at was how do we better prepare our families to advocate for our children is create spaces where they understand how education works. Some of the terminologies, again, I, I hear uh, all the time, well, this, this kid is bullying my kid. This kid is bullying. Now, bullying is a buzzword. Then we have, uh, uh, we have to talk, walk them through the process. We're not expelling kids for bullying. We have a process. We have to teach them. We have to have to learn different things, different addicts. We, they're in school to learn. They're, we're here to teach them, okay? Then we start talking about the PTA meeting. Uh, we had to get out of this notion that if 100 parents showed up, it was a success, but if five showed up, we failed. And so now we got to start looking at how can we make the best of what we have to try to get that word out. And that's how we start getting the advocacy back because now we are an open enrollment district. So majority of our students don't even live in the city. So how do we bring those students back? How we bring the parents back? And we do that by, again, further educating them, going on social media. I, I heard uh, Ms. Russia talk about, you know, going live. And having those real uh, contacts, one of the things that my district I've been proud of lately is we have been adamant about hiring alumni. So bringing the alumni, people who are who have made it the successful boots on the ground to be teachers, to be principals, to be central office, to start connecting to the families. Because I'll tell you, I get cussed out almost every other day by parents, and all I and my my go to is, you know, I'm from here, right? It changes the whole horror. Oh, you know, you get it. You, you, I can talk to you. Come here, we can level. And that makes a world of difference across the district. So that's how we could better position. Uh, some of our people who go away, you got to come back. We got to find a way to come back and get some homegrown talent back in these school districts who look like the parents, who could talk to the parents and work with the kids. I just wanted to say that I, I totally agree with you. So as a community member, I have to say all the time, I live here because they say to me, the school will say to me, what child do you have here? And I'll say all of these children, but and even the parents, when you're, when you're there and you're speaking up and you're saying things that may make some people feel uncomfortable. They're like, who is she? I live here. I'm a community member. I live four streets from the school. I see the children when they're not in school. I see them when they're engaging in the off-task behavior. I may see your child. You want to share your number with me? Show me your child, and I'll call you if I see your child. I'll pick them up and put them in my car and take them back to school. But th that is so true that you have to allow people to understand your real connection to what you see. Because every they, they'll say, you don't have a dog in the fight or you don't have a bone in the fight. I think that's what they'll say. And I said, I do because I live here. I'm not choosing to move. My house is paid for. This is where I want to sow and, and utilize my work of ministry right here in my community. So I, I commend you for sharing that. And I also think sharing with families in my community that, that money has been allocated to make sure our families are successful. And sometimes I'll say, if you're ready to discuss the budget and if you want me to show you the numbers, I will. 
because I want them to have less time with the petty fundraisers and more time in understanding where the dollars are and why it's so important that we advocate because the, the money has been allocated. Let's just make sure it's utilized appropriately. I want to kind of piggyback on the, real quick the last two things that I heard both of these great, great Black people say. Two things that made me think of the first one was, again, I'm also um, adjacent to the community that I grew up in. I'm still working in the community on purpose that I grew up in and that, you know, like that I worked in and all those things, right? So um, I often say for a lot of people, this work is a is a project for them. This is not a project for me. This is a way of life, right? Oh, like you're new here. I grew here. Right. And the other part of that is when we talk about like the how, like how Sean is saying, I go and get the kids and um, how my brother doctor here is saying, like, I'm from this community. Y'all know that the other part, the other piece of that is actually educating our families. We as black people, I always say this. We are across the table. Right. If, if I got something to say to you, I need to come straight to your face. If you have something to say to me, come to me. Other communities are more above the head leadership. So when we talk about um, what's going on in school boards, what's going on in policy, a lot of our Black families don't know that because we have often been locked out of positions of power. We often do not know gubernatorial structure. So we haven't been trained on that. Some of us barely want to vote. Um, you know, it took so many. I mean, it had to be Obama for most of us to go stand outside and vote, right? So we got to educate our families on the smaller and the larger issues, local elections, school board elections, but it literally takes people like Sean going up, pulling up, saying, hey, sister, you know, we got this school board election coming up. You don't know who to vote for. I ain't going to tell you who, but here's the candidates. Right. Here's a mail out. Here's the here's the, the the bios of these people. And and a lot of our families don't even know to attend a school board meeting. All you got to do is sign up. You can go sit in there with everybody else. While everybody acting up on Facebook, you can be right in there, too. Right. So a lot of our families don't know. And I had a mom say this to me today. She's an educator and a mom. She said, well, Jamar, it's not that. I ain't really want to be there, but I couldn't be there. I'm working full time. I'm trying to do this for my kid. I got to get food after school. Like, I don't have, I just can't. I want to, but I can't. So also making things a little bit more accessible to our families too. But you know, I, I like to share with my families all the time in my community that I can't, we, we just have to stop saying that you all. We have to make the sacrifice. We have to do the hard work. And together, we can do it. We're stronger together. Like, okay, if you say you want to go, I can pick up a box of chicken and we can eat a box of chicken on the way to the board meet. But will you go? You know, what are your challenges? Let's see if we can work with people who are helping. I know of the agencies who help pay for daycare so that we can have these meetings, you know. And, and that's all I want to say is that there are resources out there but we have to help these families when we say, so I'm very careful to uh, say about parent engagement, right? I'm very careful because in some communities, the parents that you're going to bring are going to need a lot of support. And so if you don't have that support there, I think we need to be careful before we engage them. I'm just being honest because they can be disruptive. They can be, uh, they don't have the knowledge. We don't have the interpreters or the translators. So we wasted their time. So as we talk about parent engagement and we talk about how to make change in our community, if you really have to go to the groups that are willing to help empower you so that when the people do come, whenever they come, that you're ready. 
Thank you all for your commentaries in, in regards to this. Um, we are pretty much close to wrapping up. I um, want to give you all about 30 seconds to kind of share with the community, the world, your hope um, in terms of the shifts that you guys would love to see when it comes to uh, engagement, advocacy um, for the future of our Black children and families. And we can start with um, Jamar. My hope is is exactly what what um, I want to borrow. I'm gonna steal what Sean said. So I hope I, I, Sean, I hope you got another answer. But I, I'm gonna steal. <laughs> we all don't. We have to uh, ourselves eliminate the I can'ts. We got to win when even when we're wounded. Um, so we got to eliminate the I can't. So that's my hope is that we do that, and then that we have supportive people like all of us who are joined here. More people leading these types of conversations, right? Um, more people wanting to take charge and more people wanting to educate our people because education, as cliche as it may sound, it really is the key. It really is the door. It really is the walkway. It's the path. So just more of everything. Dr. Murphy. I tell you, I, I am extremely alarmed at the amount of students and families, particularly our Black families, who want things to be easy. Uh, my hope is that we get back to pushing through hard. Education, education is going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. Uh, but we can make through it. And, and my go-to is, is the work takes work. The work takes work. It's going to take some time. We get through it. We're going to push through it. But we got, we got, we got, we got to get our strength back. We got to get our strength back to push through. So that that's my hope that that we get comfortable again with with these hard times because they're not going away. Awesome. And Sean, please close us out. My hope is that we have hope, not hope just utilizing the word, but hope in ourselves. Hope uh, that we realize that we as a people have always been met with adversity, but adversity builds character. My hope is that families will come forward whether they know what to say, how to say it, or when to say it, that they join up with other team captains in their community or people in their community who they see are making the change. My hope is that our children will realize that education is becoming a privilege. You know, it's becoming something where you're going to be isolated to uh, the have and the have-nots even more. If you don't make the choice to understand that education is the first class success, see to success, my hope is that people understand and look at me and say, well, she didn't talk about her degree or she didn't talk about this. I want them to understand that I am a mother more than anything else that lives in a neighborhood where there are a lot of low income people. It's a very diverse community. Um, but at the end of the day, I never gave up. I never stopped believing that my children could achieve and would achieve. And so my hope is, is that you show up and when you show up, you stay connected and uh, call on a partner if you don't know what to do, but don't give up. Thank you all. Well, on behalf of the Innovation for Equities Fellowship, uh, my colleagues, uh, John and Will, uh, we want to thank you all for making time to lend your expertise on a very important conversation about our Black families and students uh, when it comes to community engagement and advocacy. And so, um, again, thank you all. Um, please continue to do the work that you all 
are doing, we we need it, right? We need to have those difficult conversations with our families. We need bold leaders like you all to step in to the work um, unapologetically and do the the dirty work that is necessary to give our children an opportunity to truly unlock their genius. And, and I commend you all for signing up for this work because it's not easy, right? It's, you know, there's a lot of backlash that comes with it, you know, and not everybody plays nice in the sandbox. Um, but I think, thank you all for continuously showing up for our kids because that's what makes the difference. So again, on behalf of Innovation for Equity, uh, thank you for joining us in a, in a very fruitful conversation, but also important one for our community. Thank you. Thank you.